Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah, And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Again, welcome, everyone. Thank you for being here with us. Let me pray for us as we begin. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you through Christ, your son, for we pray in his name. Amen. Today's the fourth and final Sunday of Advent, and the best Advent sermon that I've ever read is on this text that Craig just read for you. It's by Dom Gregory Dix, and this is what he says. He says, I think one of the real difficulties of leading a Christian life in our day is the great difficulty of relating it in any very satisfying way to the surge and sweep of the mighty events which are passing daily before our eyes. The surge and sweep of the mighty events which are passing daily before our eyes. He said those words in 1945. Just a few days after the Allied troops raised their flags over Berlin at the fall of Nazi Germany. And Dix listened to that event, the raising of those flags on the radio. Children, a radio is like a podcast, except you listen to it with everyone else and you don't get to choose what you're listening to. Ask your grandparents about it. They'll explain it all to you. But he listened to it on the radio. And then he said this. He said, we have scarcely even taken note of it or been stirred by it. Events have been so crowded and swift, so much of which has happened has all been so impersonally vast, so apparently uncontrollable by any sort of action that we could individually take so that we are numbed and bewildered. We are numbed and bewildered by all that has happened. And we haven't lived through World War II, but I think we can relate because the past few years have been tumultuous to say the least. One year ago, you were all, if you were here, you were wearing masks, you were if you were here at all because you had to get RSVPs in order to even come to worship. And 
This past week, the Wall Street Journal reported that in-person attendance for churches has dropped 30 to 50% since before the pandemic. And the pandemic continues with new variants. I also read this week in an article entitled Loneliness in the Digital Age that said 79% of Generation Z, which is roughly 1997 to 2010, so middle school up into young adulthood, 79% of them struggle with loneliness and spend an average of seven hours a day on their phones. And then, of course, there's the Russian troop buildup on the border of Ukraine, and then the migrant buildup on the border of Belarus and Poland, and then there's the migrant crisis that still goes on in in our own country on the Texas border. Last week, I mentioned the war-torn difficulties of Ethiopia and the humanitarian crisis going on there. And then I'm sure you've been paying attention to everything that's happened in Kentucky this past week, the devastation there from the tornadoes. One tornado that was on the ground for 230 miles, which is greater than the distance from Austin to Dallas. Imagine that. Over 75 people died just yesterday. They finally said that they're finished looking for those who are unaccounted for. And I wonder, do we feel the difficulty of relating this text, this story, to the surge and sweep of the mighty events that are passing daily before our eyes. And if we're numbed and bewildered to it all. So in other words, what's the real meaning? What real meaning can this story, which is probably fairly familiar to most of us, what real meaning can it have to people like us in a time in which we're living? And so two points this morning, barrenness, number one, and then abandonment, number two. First of all, barrenness, barrenness in the house of mourning. The story is the story of two women. It's one that ends in great joy, but we're coming in at the end of the story, at least the end of Elizabeth's part in the story. The one word that defines her in our passage is in verse 36, the word barren. It's not the first time it's been used. Back in verse seven, at the beginning of Luke one, that is the word that introduces her and labels her, defines her. It says, but they had no child. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years, which is a really nice way of putting it. Both were advanced in years. The problem, the problem of their marriage, the problem of their life together is Elizabeth's problem. It's so all-encompassing that it's caught her husband and their entire life up in it, but it's not just her problem or their problem. It's not just their crisis. If we're to think biblically about this, barrenness is not just a problem for this couple because it has a long history in the Bible. There are many barren women throughout the Old Testament women who are very central to everything that happens throughout the biblical story. In fact, women through whose lineage Jesus comes. There's Sarah, Abraham's wife. Then Rebecca, Isaac's wife. And then Rachel, Jacob's wife. Those are the first three women in Jesus's family tree, all barren. And then we have Hannah, who's the mother of Samuel, who was the first prophet of Israel. Now we have Elizabeth, who is the mother of John, the final prophet of Israel. It's almost as if everything in the world, the world itself and everything about us, our very bodies included from the very beginning all the way up until right now are utterly opposed to God doing what he does here in Mary. Opposed to him coming to us and into our world and into human history through one of our bodies. And so barrenness is is much, much more than this their problem or an Old Testament problem. It's an image that represents a type of opposition of God coming into this world and to us. So it's not just Elizabeth's curse. It's all of our curse. It's the problem of sin. Everything that could have been said about Elizabeth and her barrenness, said about her womb, even the Bible says about us. The words it uses are dark, 
empty, void, a dryness, being withered, malformed, deformed, sick, disease, diseased within. Everything that they would have said about Elizabeth could be said about us in our sin and our brokenness. Everything that's been done to us, everything that is being done to us, everything we have done and done to others. This is a massively important image for many reasons, but one reason is that it disabuses us of the very modern and honestly very American fallacy that with enough hard work and good morals and courage, we can make our lives turn out okay, that we can make our lives turn out right. Barren women don't believe that. Fleming Rutledge, who you now know at this point is my Advent muse, she tells of this scene from a novel entitled Lie Down in the Darkness by William Styron. She tells about this this family whose disastrous lives make up the, the plot of this novel, and they attempt to gather together and to have a family meal. And the layout of the table is exquisite. It's beautiful. Heirloom china, family silver, crystal glasses, crystal candlesticks. It's the holiday season. And so it's decorated much like our, our interim sanctuary is decorated with greens and uh, greenery and bows and poinsettias. It looks perfect. And the mother has worked tirelessly to make the food as delicious and as perfect as possible. And everybody tries. The whole family really tries. They try to be nice. They try to be on their best behavior and to be kind and cordial with one another and try to act happy and to not say the the wrong thing or the offensive thing or the hurtful thing. But in the end, they can't. They just can't. They can't even make it through one meal, such as the pain and the torment in their relationships. So eventually everything that's underneath the surface gets exposed and the, the meal ends in disaster. And Fleming writes this. She says, the power of the scene lies in the contrast between the polished perfection of the holiday table and the unendurable anguish in the hearts of the participants. And I wonder if you've ever had a meal like that. Some of us will have meals like that in the next few days because at the heart of human life, there's an incapacity to make things turn out right. That's what Brent said at the confession of sin. The heart of what it means to be human as we are is an incapacity to make things turn out right. And that is why Advent summons us to a sober reflection on the nature of the world without a savior, what the world would be like without a savior. All meals would be like this if there was no savior. That meal was barren, beautiful on the outside, perfect in appearance, but lifeless within. Do you know what that's like? Beautiful on the outside, perfect in appearance, lifeless within. Have you felt that? in your own heart, your own soul, or maybe in your own house. Maybe your house is like that. Or maybe your marriage, your relationship with your children or your job. Maybe that's why you work the way that you work. Or maybe that's the reason you drink the way that you drink or exercise the way that you exercise or diet the way that you do because there's this nagging lifelessness that you feel, that you know, that pervades everything all around you. And you have the sense that it's also true deeply within you. And despite everything that you've tried to do, it's still there. And you're beginning to realize that you aren't capable in and of yourself to make things in your life, in your heart, in your relationships turn out right. Our Old Testament reading that Kathy read for you from Ecclesiastes 7 says that's a good place to be. It says that's a far better place to be than many other places you could be. Verse 2 
of Ecclesiastes 7 says what our modern therapeutic culture utterly and completely denies, which is it's better to go into the house of mourning than into the house of feasting. It's better. And this isn't a traditional Advent reading, but it's one that captures the essence of it because Advent calls us, while the rest of our culture is going into another house, is going into a house of feasting after house of feasting after house of feasting, calls us to go into another house, a house of mourning, a house where we make an honest assessment that there is lifelessness all around us and within us, that we acknowledge that and we mourn that. And we begin to admit that on some level, lifelessness pervades everything. And that we're incapable and powerless to change it unless God shows up, unless he shows up and does the impossible in us, around us, something along the line spiritually of making an old post-menopausal barren woman pregnant, that he has to do something like that on, on those lines if anything's going to be right within us. And friends, that's why going into the house of mourning and being in the house of mourning is better than going into the house of feasting because it's in the house of mourning that you begin to long for what God and he alone can do. Advent happens in the house of mourning. Elizabeth has lived almost her entire life, her entire adult life in the house of mourning. And it begs the question of us, where are we this morning? Where are you this morning? At a dinner, like the one that is described from that novel, or with Elizabeth, chapter one of Luke. So first of all, barrenness in the house of mourning. But secondly, abandonment. You're thinking, this is a really happy sermon. Abandonment, but not just abandonment, but self-abandonment. Self-abandonment for the house of feasting. This is the end of the story, so to speak, in many ways for Elizabeth, but it's just the beginning of the story for Mary because unlike Elizabeth, she's not advanced in years, she's young teenager, young. And until now, Mary's life, as far as we know, has pretty much been on course. It was turning out probably exactly as she imagined, maybe even as she had always hoped and desired, betrothed to a good man, a godly man from her village, where she would, she would marry him and, and, and come to live and to be known and respected and loved. They would have children all after they got married, which is kind of the key phrase, after they got married. But then God shows up before they got married and throws the entire course of her life and all of her expectations and imaginations off. For a couple of weeks now, David Lutz and I have been joking about singing, Mary, did you know, in worship. We've been considering that. Really, we haven't because we hate that song because it's a terrible song. There's actually a better version called Mary Freaking New. You should go and listen to it. And maybe we'll sing that. Because of course she knew, she knew, she knew at least what this word to her would mean for her. She probably didn't know, understand everything, but she knew what it would mean, that she would be shamed, that she would be rejected, that she would not be believed, she would not be understood, she would be ridiculed, she would, she would be divorced. Betrothal in that day was a formal binding relationship, binding covenant, vows had already been made. If dowries were to be exchanged, they'd already been exchanged. The only thing that they didn't do was, was live together. That was it. Everything else, they were married. So she would be divorced all alone with a baby that everyone regarded as illegitimate. She knew all of that. And yet she says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Be it done to me according to your word. Now, how could she do that? Prior to any abandonment that she herself would experience from others, she abandons herself 
to God right now in the midst of all this, despite knowing everything, knowing at least, yes, Gabriel was talking about the long-awaited Messiah, the savior of the world who would come and set the world to right, end oppression, end violence, break the power of sin, death, evil, all of it. And somehow she would be his mother. She understood at least that, but she also understood that it would cost her everything. And yet still, she says, be it done to me according to your word. How? Here's how. It's in verse 37, where Gabriel says to her, for no word of God shall be devoid of power. That's not the way it's translated in, in our translation. It's a better translation. For no word of God shall be devoid of power. And what it means is not just that God has the power to do the impossible. Of course he does. He has the power to make an old barren woman pregnant with a human son and to make a virgin even pregnant with a divine son through her body. He has the power to do that. But more than that, these words mean that there is no word of God, no promised work of God that will be devoid of power for the one who faithfully endures and suffers through it despite what it might cost him or her. In other words, Mary, there will be divine power and support given to you to endure and to suffer through this eternally good but temporarily terrible work that God must do, and he's chosen you to be a part of it. In other words, there will be power for you. And Mary believed this. Just over four years ago, a, a very dear friend of mine, Andrew Halton, passed away. Many of you knew him. I've talked many times about him. And I was with him when he died. It was just me and his wife, Anna. And it was traumatic. The death was traumatic. There, it was not a good, easy, peaceful death. There, there are no good, peaceful, easy deaths. It's not such a thing. And as I was driving home from the hospital that night, something washed over me. And it was like a fog or a fatigue, like this mental cloud that, that settled on my, my mind and my, my vision became dizzy. I became dizzy. My vision became swimmy. Uh, I, I could barely keep my eyes open. I lost all focus and I was driving down Mopac. Probably not a good thing to do. Uh, and then the next day was Sunday. I wasn't preaching, but I was presiding and, and I processed in and, and many of you probably didn't notice, those of you who are here, but I kind of wobbled in. And when I did the call to worship, I held on to the first row. And then when I led the Eucharist, I leaned into the altar table just to steady myself. And there was not another service for probably six to nine months where I didn't have some of those symptoms. I realize now that it was side effects of PTSD and they continued in varying intensity, like I said, for six to nine months. And the only service in which I didn't have those symptoms for that time period was Andrew's service. And I was driving again, I should probably not have been driving at this time, but I was driving again from my home to church that morning. And I'd woken up dizzy and I was already nervous and worried about becoming emotionally overwhelmed in the midst of the service. And so I prayed, not Mary's words exactly, but something similar, something to the effect of, Lord, I'll do this. I want to do this, but I can't do this but you've promised to never leave nor forsake me. You've called me to this, this role, this church, this community, this very service. And so give me the strength, give me the peace, give me the stability to do what I have to do. And he did because no word of God will be devoid of power. And I can't explain it. I can barely describe what happened. Again, I was, I was driving in a very similar but opposite way, something washed over me. And it was, it was a peace, it was a, a clarity, it was a calm, it was a strength. Something along the lines of what the Apostle Paul speaks of in our epistle reading from last week in Philippians chapter four. 
where he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And that washed over me that day. And, and many of you know that experience. You've told me about that experience through your loss of loved ones, children, spouses, parents, or going through chemotherapy or, or other diagnoses or divorce, separation and divorce or recovery from addiction or rejection from friends, conflict with family or the loss of a job, the loss of your finances. Many of you have known what Mary believes from the angel Gabriel that no word of God shall be devoid of power. That is what enables Mary to make her total gift of self here to God. And Mary gave God the one thing that God did not have. The one thing that God did not have, Mary gave to him, and that was a human body. And in Christ, God gave us what we ultimately lacked, which was himself. Reconciliation with him through the forgiveness of our sins, as well as his presence and the power of his spirit to endure through anything and all things, the small little difficulties of life and even the surge and sweep of the mighty events that are passing daily before our lives, all of it. And not just to endure, but to do so through offering ourselves as a total gift of self, just like Mary. And here's where I close. This is where I want you to hear especially. And that is the only way to move from the house of mourning into the house of feasting is through a total gift of yourself, of complete self-abandonment to God. And we don't just see this with Mary, we do. But we ultimately see it with Jesus. Because when he was born into this world through Mary, through her body, receiving a human body from her, he entered into the house of mourning. That is all that this world was for him. It was a house of mourning. He came to us, he mourned over us, mourned with us all the way to the cross where he died for us. And then he was raised to return to the house of feasting, his father's kingdom, but not alone, but to take us with him. He fully abandoned himself, completely gave himself up for us, for you, for me, in inexplicable, unimaginable love. He gave himself up so that we might give ourselves up to him and to know the joy that his presence alone can give in the midst of whatever it is we may face. And so will you abandon yourself to him? Because if you will, he will do in and through you what he does in and through Mary. He will use you. He will use every little action of your life, the most ordinary and the most common to communicate yourself, himself, to communicate himself to others and to do even the impossible in your midst. That's what happens here. Mary carries Jesus into this barren world. And that's what a Christian is. We see it in Mary. A Christian is someone in whom Jesus dwells by the power of his spirit, who carries Jesus into and out into the barren world in the midst of the very ordinary that the impossible might happen. A very ordinary encounter. Two pregnant women, two relatives coming together to celebrate their pregnancies and for one to care for the other while she, while she endures the rest of her, her pregnancy and enters into her labor. Ha- happens millions and millions of times throughout the world. Very ordinary But here, Jesus's presence transforms everything and the house of mourning, what has been the house of mourning for Elizabeth becomes the house of feasting. What started in crisis ends in joy, all because they give themselves up to God. Will you give yourself 
up to God. In other words, may it be to you according to his word, because no word of God shall be devoid of power, even in your life. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would know the power of your word, the power of your promises and your presence to us. We thank you for this story. We do pray that you would enable us to relate it to all that is happening in our world and in our lives, the very little and the very big, so we would know that you are with us, that you will lead us, that you have come to us, you will come again, and that you never leave us alone in the midst of all that we face. Give us great joy and hope and comfort in the midst of that, we pray. Amen.